The leaders within the Secret Service would stage KKK reenactments. We saw vile, racist, graphic jokes. African-American agents who were successful in their jobs, who were impressive, who had so much to contribute, were being stymied in their careers. Secret Service agents must be willing to put their lives on the line to protect government officials and their families. But despite their dedicated service, Black agents have faced a long history of discrimination within the agency. My name is Kate Stetson. I'm a global board member and the co-director of our appellate practice at Hogan Lovells. After years of Black agents being denied career advancement and experiencing a culture of racism, Hogan Lovells led the legal effort to force change. Attorneys Des Hogan and Erica Songer served as counsel representing Black Secret Service officers. Erica, let me start with you. Can you tell us about what was happening internally in the Secret Service? Sure, thanks, Kate. Um, what we saw was that African-American Secret Service agents were having to bid for hundreds of promotions within the service for jobs that they were clearly qualified for. Um, and they were getting passed over again and again in this process. And not only that, but many of these Secret Service agents had to serve in an acting role in some of the positions that they were applying to fulfill on a permanent basis. And then when they were passed over, they had to train their less qualified uh, white successors, um, which was very um, dispiriting and, and even humiliating. Um, there was also a culture of discrimination at the Secret Service that was really important um, and having a detrimental impact on the experience of the Black agents. Um, we were seeing evidence that the Secret Service used to hold a, a good old boy roundup where the leaders within the Secret Service would stage KKK reenactments, uh, really. And uh, we saw a noose at the Beltsville training facility um, hanging. We saw jokes being exchanged between um, supervisors within the service that were vile, racist, um, graphic jokes. Um, and all of that together meant that African-American agents who were successful in their jobs, who were impressive, who had so much to contribute, were being stymied in their careers. And, um, and to me, it was, it was not only that they were unable to achieve promotions that they deserved, but it was that the Secret Service overall was being diminished because they were not taking advantage of all of the talent that was available. And not to put too fine a point on it, but you know the time frame that we're talking about was not the you know fifties or sixties or the eighteen hundreds, right? Oh no, <laughs> no, I believe the case was filed in two thousand, um, and uh, you know I'm, I'm about forty, and I was a lawyer when we were litigating this case, so it is it is in recent history. So, so does how did we get how did Hogan Lovells get involved? 
so, uh, you know, when you've been at a place 25 years, you tend to get asked a question like this and you start talking about the old days, but you've got to forgive me, I'm going to talk about the old days. The reason that we got involved in this case is the firm has had a long history of taking on uh, race discrimination cases in public accommodations and employment. And um, in, back in the early 90s, we had a series of cases, uh, some against some hotel chains, but most famously a, a case against Denny's when a number of Secret Service agents uh, were refused service on the basis of their race. Um, and it was a highly public case that got headlines and a great settlement for the Black Secret Service agents who were discriminated against at Denny's. Um, because of that relationship that we had with John Relman, who was at the time at the Lawyers Committee, when he went out and formed his own firm, his own civil rights firm, the, one of the first cases that he brought was this case. And he, he asked us to become involved um, in the case as it, as it grew and got bigger. And we ended up partnering with John and his, his uh, firm of Relman and Associates at the time. Uh, and, and in fact, one of our team members went over, left us, uh, and went over and, and has become a partner at the Relman firm, Jen Clark, and she was a driving force behind the case. So based on this long history of working with Relman, with the Lawyers Committee, when the fighting got big and tough, we, did, we were asked to and were pleased to partner with John to represent Ray Moore and all of the other Secret Service agents in this case. So Erica, Des just mentioned Mr. Moore. I wonder, could, could you tell us a little about uh, some of the plaintiffs in the case, who you represented, what their claims were? Absolutely. Um, the plaintiffs were just really exceptional human beings. And the first memory I have of the case is actually working on um, declarations describing the experiences of some of the class members in the case. Um, and talking about what they went through. And we were doing calls at, you know, kind of all hours of the, of the day and night because being a Secret Service agent uh, is not a nine to five desk job. Um, they're just incredible people who are public servants. And um, that's what makes the discrimination they faced so reprehensible. Um, Ray Moore was someone who, you know, protected the president and was willing to take a bullet for the president of the United States for his job. And yet people were telling him that he couldn't, um, he couldn't serve at the highest levels um, that he was capable of because of, because of his race. He was being passed over again and again in the promotions process. I remember so vividly conversations with Cheryl Tyler, another of the plaintiffs, where she was told point blank that the Secret Service wasn't ready for an African-American woman to serve at the highest levels of the Secret Service. And again, as you noted, this is in the 2000s, not the 1950s. Um, and they were really committed at all points in the case, not just to receive justice for themselves, but to really change the way the Secret Service operated. So you know, a lot of times when people think about litigation, they think about relief for the particular plaintiffs, but this was a class action case and it was so important to the plaintiffs who put themselves out there at, at great professional risk, I should say, 
to make sure that the next generation of Secret Service agents did not have to face the discriminatory processes and culture that they experienced. So this was a class action case. How how many Secret Service agents um, were involved then? Well, it ultimately the class was over a hundred uh, African American Secret Service agents. It's a classic glass ceiling case where they would not be able to advance to the highest levels of the service, as Erica was saying, despite being overqualified for them. Um, but really, you know, you asked a question earlier of saying, well, this didn't go back to the, to the 50s or 60s. It actually did. There's a long history of discrimination in the service. And one of the hard things was um, there was a huge swath of the, the pioneer African-American agents of the Secret Service who were time barred be, uh, from being able to bring this claim. But not only was there the 118 people, but they were standing on they were standing on the shoulders of the those who had come before them and who who had suffered some of the worst discrimination you can imagine. Um, I'm yet again being emotional about this, but I think about the 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 the. I think I think about yeah I think about the way that Ray and Cheryl and Andy and the rest of our clients talked about the racism that, that their predecessors faced. And that was racism that went, you know, un- unremedied, essentially. Unremedied. And the, the beautiful thing about it, though, Kate, was that those that that huge swath of people, the first generation of Black Secret Service agents were behind this. They showed up at hearings. They supported us with writing declarations. They weren't going to get anything out of this other than the trouble of potentially being deposed and having their time imposed on. But they wanted to make it right for the next generation. So Erica mentioned that this this case began in, in the early 2000s. It took a long time. Um, can one of you talk a little bit about just the, the procedural history of the case? Yeah, sure. I, I will, I, I'll start and Erica can jump in. The procedural history of the case was disturbing for the cause of justice. Um, you know, justice delayed is justice denied. And that's what this case was about. We filed the case, as we said before, in 2000. We took the extraordinary step of filing not one, but two mandamus petitions against the district judge. Um, he sat on uh, that we filed the complaint, the, the agency moved to dismiss, discovery got stayed. He sat on the motion to dismiss for four and a half years where nothing could happen in the case. We finally mandamused him to the DC circuit. It's hard to do when you take a shot at the king, um, you, you shouldn't miss. Uh, and the, before the circuit could act over the, we filed on a Friday before the circuit could act on Monday, he issued a a, an opinion um, uh, that essentially said we need to go and exhaust our administrative remedies in some way. And, and so we went, we did that, we came back, we filed yet another uh, new complaint. It pended for a year and a half with a motion to dismiss. We mandamused him again to the DC circuit and he finally uh, moved the case forward after that. So it was essentially six years of delay before the case could move forward with two, two um, mandamus petitions to the DC circuit. But once it started, um, we pressed hard on that and, and we can talk about that process going forward if you, if you want to, Kate. 
I do want to, actually. Uh, so when, once things got rolling after the first several years of, of non-action, um, there were uh, significant discovery disputes, including, I think, a finding by the district court that the Secret Service had destroyed some documents. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I think it's really important to appreciate that it was not only that the judge was um, not managing the docket of this case and, and putting the defendant's feet to the fire uh, to contend with it, but it was also that the um, the Secret Service, the government was fighting it every step of the way. Um, and that included significant uh, discovery misconduct, including discovery misconduct that resulted in sanctions. I'll give you a couple of examples. One was that the Secret Service was found to have burned relevant documents. Um, and after around 17 days of arguments on this discovery misconduct, the judge issued a sanction. Uh, and I should note that the documents were not just peripherally relevant. They were the documents that laid out why the evaluation process um, for why someone was or wasn't getting a promotion. Um, they were really significant and, and directly relevant. And um, not only did it result in a sanction in the case, but I believe the employee involved just put on administrative leave. It was, it was significant and um, it was courageous of the magistrate judge to issue the sanctions that, that the government deserved um, due to their discovering misconduct. And I have to ask, Erica, what, did, did you just say the documents were burned? They were burned. How, how I, I'm not even going to ask how that happened, but how did you, how did you find out? So I'll, uh, I'll jump in here. So Erica mentioned that there was a 17-day evidentiary hearing, which, I mean, pause and think about that for a second. A 17-day evidentiary hearing on discovery disputes when, after we filed motions to compel. Um, the, the, the behavior of the Secret Service in responding to discovery was so disturbing that the magistrate judge had, as I said, now third time a 17-day evidentiary hearing. Mm. During the cross-examination, uh, really maybe my favorite cross-examination ever I've done myself in my life, um, the, the woman who was in charge of, of keeping statistics on on promotions and other issues, uh, and including the, the handwritten notes with regard to what went into promotions, acknowledged on the stand that she she had um, that she no longer had access to the to the notes of the decisions on promotions, which would be key evidence in the case. And I I said to I asked her, you know, well, what happened to them? And incredibly, surprisingly, she said, well, I burned them. And, and I said, what? And she said, yeah. And I said, can you tell me something about that? And she said, sure. I, I put them in a burn bag and I lit them on fire in the oven in the Secret Service. You can imagine that for the next next three hours or so, every question that I asked started with, after you placed the relevant documents in the burn bag and set them on fire, <laughs> you did what? And uh, it was it was it was an amazing uh, day of testimony and cross examination. In that we sh realizing that she was she had admitted to the fraud on the court. She um, 
she started responding by taking two to three minute breaks before she would answer questions such that we would start, I'd ask her a question and would have to call out into the record and let the record reflect that the witness waited three minutes before answering the question. Um, and, and, and there were many other people involved, Erica and Melissa Hankey and Debbie Boardman and Jen Clark, all from our firm were involved in this evidentiary hearing, putting on evidence and making arguments. I, I have to say it was one of the most shameful uh, set of circumstances I've ever seen where our federal government, and, and it wasn't just this one woman, there were numerous people engaged in the active, active attempt to hide the evidence from the plaintiffs in this case. So you think about it, our clients are people who've been discriminated against, who are willing to do nothing but serve the country, want nothing but to fix this for them. They bring a lawsuit to take advantage of the process that is accorded to them and the government responds by cheating. They respond by burning things, hiding evidence, lying on the stand. And that's what led to the sanction that Erica talked about. There was both monetary sanctions and most importantly, a ruling by the magistrate judge that they could not put on a defense to our prima facie case. It is the rule 37 most powerful sanction there is. And it's what led ultimately to the resolution of the case in, in favor of our clients. It's an astonishing, an astonishing story at, at any level, but yeah. The, the discovery misconduct didn't even stop there, which, um, you know, that was the most egregious example. But, you know, after discovery had effectively ended, you know, years earlier, we received a production of emails and they just showed up one day and, uh, you know, they appended to them was some sort of cover note that said, we don't think these are relevant to your case, but, you know, in an abundance of caution, we're going to turn them over to you. And we look through those emails and our jaws were just on the floor because to see the leadership of the Secret Service joking about the assassination of a protectee who was African-American talking about sexual violent uh, tropes that are racist using images and circulating them among the Secret Service. I mean, the thoughts that must have been going through someone's mind to think, not only is this amusing, but I'm gonna share it with my colleagues on my government work email, I think it's just an indication of how poisonous the culture was within the Secret Service leadership and how problematic it was um, to their colleagues, their African-American colleagues who were serving alongside them in these difficult, dangerous jobs. And then years after that, um, I think my last argument in the case was related to uh, an expert that the Secret Service, that the government had used to, um, to help prove their case, and that expert had passed away. Government didn't tell us for in excess of a year that their expert had passed away. And then they came to us and said, we've retained this new expert. Uh, who's just going to do the same thing? And then we get that new expert's report, and it is different in meaningful ways as to what the prior expert had opined on. And so we had to go to court once again to say that the government can change their story in the 11th hour. 
and use the fact that their prior expert died as an excuse to then alter their arguments. You know, that has a, a detrimental impact and an unfair impact on our clients. And again, the magistrate came to the right result, but it was just every step of the way that we had to fight just to maintain a fair process within the case. Yeah. And just a just a relentless series of acts, it sounds like, over over many years. So despite that, despite the burn bag, uh, the late breaking emails, uh, the late breaking expert, the Hogan Lovells team managed to put together a case for class certification. So tell us a little bit about how that came together and what the decision was. Sure, I'll, I'll start. I'm sure Erica can supplement it. Um, it was a long and hard fought process to get to class certification, but uh, there, there are two things we did. One, we put in an extremely compelling statistical analysis that demonstrated a long and pervasive history of race discrimination at the Secret Service and advancing the, the, these heroic people um, to the highest levels of the Secret Service, an unmistakable pattern that once uh, that Black people reached a certain level in the service, they wouldn't get promoted higher. Secondly, we put in uh, what is known as, well, we put in evidence, <laughs> I guess, what is known as evidence. And the evidence came in the form of of really deep and detailed stories of discrimination that people had faced, heart-wrenching declarations, dozens, I mean, scores of declarations were put in by, by the eightly named plaintiffs, um, and additionally, dozens, scores of other Black Secret Service agents who had faced discrimination as, as early as the 1960s and coming forward all the way. Some of the things that Erica mentioned, uh, with regard to uh, racist tropes against them, it, uh, humiliating stories of discrimination, um, and 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 uh, things like that, and we put that in. The Secret Service vigorously opposed that. Uh, after waiting quite a while, the district judge finally issued a class certification opinion, certifying a class that said that there was substantial evidence of class-wide discrimination that was pervasive, and it was a common issue that would be tried by a class action. The Secret Service took an appeal of that to the DC Circuit, of course. And <laughs> I think, Kate, as you know, uh, uh, there, the, our appellate advocate was probably the best appellate advocate in the DC Circuit who did an incredible job of fighting off some really pointed questions by Chief Judge Garland and others on the DC circuit. And uh, thanks to your good advocacy there, Kate, we were able to get a, a, a 3-0 opinion in the DC circuit affirming the class certification. That meant that we were headed to trial and the Secret Service knew one thing, that the terrible publicity and the overwhelming evidence we had meant that they could never try this case. I'll just add that the declarations, uh, you know, it, they really demonstrated with a human face the what a lie it was that the government was um, was asserting when they said that each of these cases were, were individualized, they were different, you know, they shouldn't be aggregated and considered as a class action because the stories were so strikingly similar 
that you had agents bidding again and again for jobs that they had all the requisite skills for, um, that they were told similar things about why they weren't going to get the promotion. Um, and, and, you know, and it's interesting, sometimes they were, they were conflicting, uh, they were conflicting assertions as well, where agents would be told you have to uh, have a position outside of headquarters in order to be eligible for a promotion. Well, lo and behold, you would see people getting promoted that didn't have that experience. But lots of African-American agents were told the same thing. Other African-American agents were told, well, you don't have enough experience at headquarters uh, to be eligible for a promotion. But they would see other agents getting promoted without that same experience. So it really demonstrated how false uh, the, the purported reasons were that they weren't getting promoted, the, the explanations that they were given. And it showed that they had this common experience that really uh, meant that their cases should be considered together rather than individually. And, you know, Kate, you know well, because you, you argued it so beautifully in the DC circuit. And I just want to put on the record that this is the, uh, that's the best appellate argument I've ever seen. <laughs> and it did the Secret Service agents very proud. Thank you, Erica. Um, so talking about the declarations makes me think more about the declarants themselves. You know, we, we talked about how long this case took even to get going. The four and a half years, the motion to dismiss just sat unremedied. The, the year and a half the complaint took to get going. What, what were the... What were the reactions of your plaintiffs of the class during this time? That must have been incredibly frustrating for them. My perspective, I was always surprised. They, they were impatient for sure and wanted this to move forward faster. But I was always surprised because it seemed to me that the lawyers were much more disturbed by this than our clients were. They took this on, not for a short-term solution. They took this on with the knowledge that this was gonna be a long-term fight to fundamentally change the way the Secret Service did things so that it lives up to the values that it purported to, to support. And so there was this almost calm patience of the agents to that we are in this fight for the long haul. And what matters at the end is if we win, not how fast we get there. I have to tell you, I did not share that view, uh, but I, I appreciated the fact that they, they expressed confidence in the legal team at every turn. And they said, look, justice is gonna prevail eventually. Let's be patient and get it right. And that, that was the approach they took. We saw, you know, Secret Service agents who were class members retire in the course of the case. Uh, I believe we had at least one who passed away. Um, we saw their children grow up. I mean, it was clear that all of this time was passing and that there was still this fight for justice that had to continue. And, and they were unwavering in their resolve, but it really is one of the, um, one of the disturbing parts of the case was that it took so long to achieve what they were, what they were entitled to. I should add one thing on that, which is we started the case with eight named plaintiffs events during the course of it, two were added. So there were 10 named plaintiffs. 
the case took so long that by the end, we only had one plaintiff who was an active member of the Secret Service. And we were worried that the government was going to make an argument if he retired that the case would be mooted because there'd be nobody who's an active member of the Secret Service who could benefit from the injunctive relief we were seeking. So when Ken would come to us and say, hey, you know, I'm thinking about retirement, be like, man, you can't retire yet. You know, we got to we got to get to the end. So um, uh, I'm glad he hung in there for a lot of reasons, but it just shows that in real life, how long this really took in people's careers. Yeah, and just the vicious irony that it would have been if it had been somehow mooted out after all those years. So after the case came back down from the class certification appeal, um, Des, you mentioned the next step was trial. The government understood how difficult it would be uh, for them to try this case, the publicity that it would gather uh, in addition to the difficulty that they would have on the merits. So what happened next? So... What happened next uh, was we were coming to the end of the Obama administration. Um, and we realized that, uh, that you know, that the world could change. And in fact, it did. Um, and that we needed to, we had an opportunity to try. They knew that when we tried this case, because beyond just the legal fight, we had had established deep relationships with reporters at the New York Times, Atlanta Journal Constitution, Washington Post, and other media outlets. They realized that that we would, we that there would be headlines every day about the incredible racist behavior at the Secret Service if they tried the case. And so we we went to them at the end of the Obama administration and said to Jay Johnson's uh, deputies, who, who he was the head of Homeland Security at the time that's over the Secret Savers and said, now's the time. You know, this injustice shouldn't go on any longer. Let's sit down and have a real conversation about that. And the non-public part of this that is not privileged but hasn't been discussed is there are leaders on Capitol Hill um, from the Congressional Black Caucus who were instrumental in influencing the, the decision of the, of the Department of Homeland Security to be open to sitting down and resolving this case. And so um, I think six or seven months before the election, um, we had a mediation here in our offices at Hogan Lovells uh, up on the 13th floor and uh, significant leaders from the Secret Service came uh, I'm sorry, Ed from Department of Homeland Security and Secret Service came as well as their counsel. We sat there in a long mediation um, and tried to work it out. And the mediation was not guided by a mediator. It was just a private negotiation, I guess. And I remember the, the moment when we were going back and forth. We were at loggerheads. And I, I said something to the lead negotiator on the other side. And I said, look, can you and I just walk down the hall and have a conversation and, and talk about this? And I'm laughing because the, the attorneys on the other side's heads were about to explode when he <laughs> said, yes, let's do it. And uh, so we walked down the hall and we were, I mean, I am limited in some ways about what I can des describe about a settlement negotiation. But we went into that room and um, had a discussion 
that uh, at the end of it, we were able to shake hands and agree to two things. One, that we would, that the class would be receiving the largest um, payout of any federal employee race discrimination case um, in the history of the country. And two, that there would be substantial and real meaningful injunctive relief that would change the culture of the Secret Service. And he looked me in the eye and said, the President of the United States is behind this. Jay Johnson is behind this. We have to do the right thing. And the time's come to put this case to bed. Let's, can we do that together? And I said, that's all we've ever wanted. And so we, we shook hands and came back to the room and we let everyone know. That <laughs> we, we came back to the room and we let everyone know that we had resolved the case. It was a beautiful moment for justice. It's a beautiful moment hearing about it again. You mentioned as the, the, some of the protections and processes that were put in place to, to make promotions more equitable. Um, can one of you talk a little bit about those? So there, there were a number of things put in place. I'll just give you some high levels that, that there was a significant, there were, and this is getting in the weeds a little bit, Kate, but there was significant issues about the process of how implicit and explicit bias came into the decision-making process of the people who, had, who were sitting in a committee advancing people in the Secret Service. We changed that so that, that, that we have processes in place to get rid of that implicit bias. There were structural problems with how people of color were, all people were credited with experience. We changed that as well. And we made sure that there was ongoing significant monitoring reporting to us about what the results are of the, of the promotions. And that's led to a meaningful change. Once those barriers of discrimination were removed to the pro from the process, all of a sudden there is a meaningful, meaningful and statistically significant change of black people being at the lead levels, the SES, what are known as the SES and GS-15 levels of the Secret Service. And it's thanks to Ray Moore and Cheryl Tyler and Andy and the rest of the rest of the name plaintiffs that spent so much time uh, dedicated to this, that what they really wanted was not the money, but what they wanted was this fundamental change to the service. And I'm really proud of them for sticking with it and getting that change to happen. So the plaintiffs got, um, in this case, in addition to those structural changes that would help the people who were coming behind them in the service, in addition to the largest federal uh, payment and employment discrimination action in the country, what the plaintiffs didn't get, uh, as I understand it, was an expression of apology for wrongdoing, an admission of wrongdoing from the government. Was that, was that a bitter pill? You know, I always felt like what the agents wanted the most was the structural change. Um, you know, I'm sure they would have appreciated um, an admission of guilt, an apology for their careers being taken off the track and being permanently deprived of the progress that they could have made and the contributions that they could have made to the Secret Service. But when I spoke with them, the focus was always on the future. It was not on themselves. And that, it, that was always so inspiring to me because they had personally borne the 
burdens of the discrimination and seeing their careers stunted. And, you know, that has not only emotional consequences and morale consequences, it has financial consequences um, that they were that they were experiencing and that their families were experiencing. And, you know, nothing can make up for that. But um, they were always focused on repairing the Secret Service. They cared about that agency. You know, they, they were people who were driven to serve and they wanted the Secret Service to live up to, to our highest ideals and to take advantage of the full potential of our population and of people who also wanted to serve. So to me, um, it always seemed to be more about that than, um, than an apology. Although I'm sure they would have appreciated one, they certainly deserved it. I'm sure. Des, you mentioned uh, this a couple minutes ago, but I wanted to circle back to it. You mentioned that since the settlement, there's been a statistically significant change in the number of uh, SES and GS-15 and higher um, people serving in the service. Uh, did that change happen immediately? Is it something that has accrued over time? Do you see it continuing to accrue? Uh, it did happen almost immediately, um, which really demonstrates the effectiveness. And I have to give great, great credit to Jen Clark and Megan Kakesi at Roman um, at Roman and Colfax. Those two understood the levers that had to be pulled and the, tr the, the tracing of what could really move in a statistically significant way, uh, the process to have a more fair and equitable uh, approach to promotions. Um, it immediately happened and Kate, it's happened. I think we've had three or now maybe four years of reporting since, uh, since the settlement has been finalized and it continues it, the, the change is persistent and it's making the leadership of the Secret Service more reflective of the entire population of Secret Service agents. I hope I hope those plaintiffs are seeing that as well. I hope they know it and I hope they understand their role in making that happen. I, what I do know is that the people of color who are at the Secret Service today recognize the contribution that the named plaintiffs have made to substantially changing the culture and their future career path. And there's a real recognition that they risked a lot in their personal careers. And I don't think we can underestimate how hard this was to do to file this lawsuit and to stand up and fight during the middle of your career. It definitively cost our people promotions and opportunities, but the next generation recognizes that and, and, pays homage to, to, to the name plaintiffs who brought this lawsuit and fought for all these years. That was well said. Thank you. Erica, Des, anything more to add before we wrap up? I guess I would just add that, you know, I first came into contact with the Secret Service um, when I was a White House intern as a college kid. And I was an intern uh, on September 11th, 2001. And in working on this case, I always thought about the Secret Service agents who rushed to my office to evacuate the building and to make sure that everyone was safe. And their calm and their stoicism and their, their immediate attention to others 
as opposed to their own safety when we didn't know what was happening uh, in the country and their professionalism. And, and then I went on and, you know, throughout my internship, I saw agents every day, you know, just doing their job and not knowing what the next day was going to bring. And I thought, I always thought about that, that commitment um, to serving our country as we were working on these cases. And when I heard about the agents who rushed into the towers and the agents who, you know, trained to extract the president from um, a dangerous situation, you know, the injustice that you would have to face um, discrimination on the based on the, based on the color of your skin, um, in addition to bearing all of those weighty professional responsibilities, that it is difficult to even contemplate uh, as an attorney. You know, I just, I, the case was always so personally rewarding to work on as a result of that because it just felt like if these people fight for us they need people to fight for them. And I was just so privileged to be a part of it. Erica, thank you for that. In our next episode of the podcast, we'll look at another case involving Secret Service officers. We'll tell you how a single report of discrimination against Black agents at a major American restaurant chain exposed a disturbing pattern. We'll also take a look at Hogan Lovell's work defending the LGBTQ community after voters in one state passed a new law blocking efforts to end discrimination. We hope you'll join us.